Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Good morning, this is the Michael Reid Show. Coming up this morning, Stephen Breen of the Irish Sun will give us a reaction to the sentencing yesterday of Fat Freddie Thompson. We'll be talking to Una Swords from Kildalki about the ongoing crisis there regarding school transport for local children. Deputy Thomas Bourne, Fianna Fáil spokesperson on education, will tell us about the shortage of school places in Ashburn and give us his reaction to the Oireachtas Committee meeting on education this week. Sean Moynihan, CEO of Alone, will talk to us about the rise in the number of over 65s in emergency accommodation. And we'll We'll be talking to Kevin Doyle, Group Political Editor with the Irish Independent, about the glut of dragons now contesting the presidential election. All that to come between now and 11 o'clock. We welcome your text to 086 1800 658. That's 086 1800 658. We're going to begin this morning with the latest on the cervical check scandal. And joining me to discuss this is Deputy Louise O'Reilly, Sinn Féin Spokesperson on Health and TD for Dublin Fingal. Louise, good morning to you. Good morning, Cahill, and good morning to your listeners. Can I ask you, Deputy, this this is not a good time to be a woman in Ireland if you have any concerns about cancer. Yeah, well, it's hard to look back uh, on our history, Cahill, and imagine when it was a good time to be a woman in Ireland. But uh, this is a particularly dark time. Um, what I would like to say to anyone listening this morning is screening programmes really work. They really do save lives, and it's really important, notwithstanding what the government have done. They have undermined confidence in the in the screening facilities. It is extremely important that uh, that women continue to get screened because screening saves lives. Unfortunately, now what we see is because of the panic caused by uh, the revelations made by really brave women like Vicky Phelan and Emma Vicbahuna, we now see um, that women want to get repeat smear tests um, as they are entitled to do. Um, but because uh, a lot of women have decided that they want to get a repeat smear test just to put their own minds at rest. I mean, you know, these are young women very often with young families. They're looking at their kids and they're thinking, well, I just want to be sure to be sure. And, and I couldn't blame them for that. Um, and they want to get the, the repeat smear tests. And now because of the numbers and because no provision was made by the Minister for Health, when he made the big announcement um, at the time the scandal was breaking, he said any woman that wants a repeat smear test can absolutely have it. But he made no provision for uh, any additional resources or any additional capacity. And we now see that women are going for their smear tests. The samples are being sent off. But because of the delay, 
the samples are going out of date and now some women are going to have to be retested. So just, just to bring listeners up to date, um, the, the, the slides, for want of a better word, have a six-week uh, window to be tested. And because of the backlog, and, and, and as you rightly say, there are so many women concerned now that they are going to have rechecks and they are going to have maybe in some cases their first cervical uh, check. Mm-hmm. But there is now a 12-week backlog on tests and the uh, window for testing is six weeks. Six weeks. And this is a direct result of yet again the this government and the Minister for Health over promising and under delivering. The T shock came out and said oh, no woman will have to go, go through the adversarial process of the courts within weeks um we see that uh, that there is a woman having to do exactly that. And these are the, the reason this we is, know this about is Ruth this. Morrissey from Limerick. Ruth Morrissey, absolutely yeah. who's, who's a young mother? She's a young mother exactly. with a young family. Yeah, it's because these brave young women with young families are coming forward and telling their stories. They really shouldn't have to do that. Ruth Morrissey is a very sick woman. She doesn't need the, the additional stress of having to go through the courts or indeed having to, to go to the media. I mean, we're very grateful that she does because and that women like her are brave enough to come forward because what we do then, we, we see the truth, we see what's really happening, we see that, um, you know, that there, there isn't much substance to what the Taoiseach says when he says you're not going to have to engage in an adversarial process. And then we find out that, uh, yet again, over-promised and under-delivered. But the Minister for Health at the same time was very clear. He said any woman that wants, uh, that, that feels that she needs to have a repeat test can have it, but he never made any provision for any additional resources. And now you have women who, and you know, I mean, going for a smear test, it's not the end of the world, but it's not pleasant either. And you have women who have done the right thing who have engaged with the screening programme, who have gone back to have a retest and who are now going to be getting letters from their doctors to say, due to the backlog, the slide has expired and we now need you to come in again. It's not fair. You know, I mean, it's it's really awful. I'm just going to remind uh, listeners, Deputy, the, the story of Ruth Morrissey. She's 37 years of age. She's from Schoolhouse Road in Monolane in County Limerick. She has cervical and breast cancer. She tried to settle her, her case. She's a mother of a seven-year-old. She'd smear tests carried out in 2009 and 2012. And in both instances, they were wrongly reported as, as normal. She tried to settle this. She took a case against the HSE, US-based lab, uh, Quest Diagnostics, and an Irish firm, MedLab Pathology. They tried to get this settled. Uh, now she's had to take it to the High Court after settlement talks failed. And this is going to go to the High Court next month. This woman I mean, should not be put through this ordeal. No, no. And, you know, like this is a very sick woman with a young family. And the last thing she should have to face is a full-on battle with the state. And, I mean, I, I have spoken to, to Vicky Phelan, and Vicky has spoken publicly about the type of questioning um, that they engaged in when she was, was going through the court's process. It was deeply intrusive. Um, it was invasive. It is... It, it would compromise your dignity, but actually Vicky Fielding is a woman whose dignity has not been compromised because she's a very strong individual. But um, from, from my part, I would find it very hard to be subjected to those kind of questions in front of a courtroom full of strangers where, you know, she was asked questions about her sex life. She was asked questions um, about her own health, intimate questions, which really, you know, when you're, when you're sick, I mean, it would be hard enough to engage in that sort of process if you were in the whole of your health. How do you women think, like Ruth how, and Vicky are, are sick women. How do you think Leo Varadkar would, would react if he was questioned in a similar manner? I don't think anyone would like to be questioned like that, Carl. I, mean, I think anyone listening this morning, 
you know, um, could have nothing but sympathy for the women. But the, the problem arises when we have government officials who are so, or government ministers, who are so consumed with spin and simply being able to distract from the issue that they make statements that they cannot back up. The Minister for Health should not have said that women can have a repeat test if he hadn't gone and made the provision. He's the Minister for Health. The buck stops with him. He is in charge. It is within his remit to make sure that the resources are deployed so that he can make good on that promise. But he simply said what he thought would be a good soundbite, um, what he thought would sound good at the time, be enough just to, to kind of calm people down. But he never backed it up. And now we have women waiting 13 weeks. And, you know, if you are somebody who is a concerned and you have gone for a repeat test, it's a very... It's a very worrying time while you're waiting on that test result. So you've women at home now who are waiting on that test result. They're, they're anxious. And now they're going to get a, um, a phone call or a letter to tell them actually they might have to go back and have another test. Now, I mean, I will stress screening programmes work. They save lives. They are extremely important. And we can't allow what has happened and we can't allow the failures of this government to um, to shake our confidence in the system. Sure, you. the system might need to more investment, but screening programmes really do work. And I, I, I want to get that message out to, to women. As I'm sure you're aware, Deputy O'Reilly, um, Dr Gabriel Scally's report is due to be presented next month and that will go to Cabinet. We also uh, saw recently where, where the government has elected Judge Charles Meenan to take charge of a group which will look at an alternative redress for victims. Now, he has been set an October deadline to come up with his report on this and his recommendations. He is in the papers this morning and is saying that he will meet that deadline, but that group has yet to meet. Yeah, I, I think it's highly ambitious um, that he will meet that deadline. But can I just go back to the, the publication of the Scali report? And I actually wrote to the Minister for Health on this yesterday. The media reports are suggesting that the Scali report will go first uh, to Cabinet. Um, now, my understanding is there's no there's no need for this to go to Cabinet. I have requested that the Minister, as soon as that report is made available, that he convene a meeting with the women affected and that he share that information with the women affected in the first instance and that the information is shared with opposition health spokespersons thereafter and after that to Cabinet if necessary. But I don't think that this should go through the process. I mean, we've seen it before, Cahill. Drip, drip, drip leaks into the media, little bits, uh, little bits of the report getting leaked in the, in the, in the run-up to the Cabinet meeting. I think that it is the least that the women affected deserve that the report would be presented to them rather than given to uh, Cabinet ministers in the first instance. But with regard to the, uh, the October deadline uh, for the mediation process, Given, as you've said, that the, that the group hasn't met, uh, I would be concerned that that deadline is going to be missed. Uh, I mean, the Gabriel's Galley report was due uh, before, the re- before the doll went into recess. And of course, now um, we're nearly back after, our, um, after the, the, the summer recess and the report still hasn't been published. So that report has been delayed. Um, the, this government are not, uh, are, are not exactly... Uh, good on keeping to deadlines. So I would be concerned that uh, October is a very ambitious deadline, but I suppose we'll have to wait and see uh, if that report will be published. But you're, you're, say, if they haven't met it, it wouldn't inspire confidence. Your Labour Party equivalent, Alan Kelly TD, has said that before it is circulated, this is the Scally report, to the public, it should be given to the women and families at the centre of the scandal. Do you think they should get it first? And do you think well, they that's will? That's exactly what I, I, I have been saying. I wrote to the Minister for Health and I requested exactly that. Um, and, and, you know, I think sometimes politicians are very quick to go out and, and make a call in the media without actually following it up. 
Uh, but I have already written to the Minister and I've said that the Scali report has to be shared with the victims in the first instance, with the women themselves and their family. Then I think the Minister should provide a briefing for opposition health spokespersons. And then, of course, it can go to Cabinet if necessary. But I don't believe that it is necessary that the Cabinet are the first people to see this report. And I'm very worried that portions of that report are going to be leaked into the media in the run-up to the Cabinet meeting. I think it's the least that the women deserve to have uh, an open and uh, an honest uh, exchange with them and to give them all of the information from the, the Scali report. And of course, there's a separate report which will look at the quality of screening in the labs and that's not expected for six months. Yes, and you know, what was very interesting actually when uh, I'm a member of the Bureaucracy uh, Health Committee and we had the medical laboratory scientists in um, in front of us to give us uh, to give us evidence and answer our questions. And one of the things they were very very clear on is when the decision to outsource to uh, to outsource the screening service to the American laboratories was taken. Now these, these are their words, not mine. They described it as an entirely political decision. It wasn't made for clinical reasons. They said it was made for political reasons. It was a political decision taken by politicians. Now I would like to see all of the screening services carried out um, in this state. I think we have the capacity, the medical laboratory scientists... Well, wh- why why would it be a political advantage to have it moved out of the state? Um, I don't know. Uh, I really don't. I, it could have been cheaper. Um, I, I, my memory at the time, because I was working in the union at the time and we raised serious objections to this, my memory at the time was that the labs would have required a small amount of investment in order to bring them up to speed and um, that the cost would have been a factor so that it, it would have worked out cheaper um, to outsource them. But I sincerely hope that, uh, that you know, that, that, that cheaper wasn't, um, wasn't lower quality because I think and I fear that the report um, on the comparison between the Irish labs and the US labs is going to find that there is a significant difference in the, the quality of and the of course, carried out. And of course, because of the backlog now, they're going to have to send some tests abroad. They are being sent abroad. They are being sent abroad. And I think we should be focusing on uh, ensuring that the tests are carried out here. And if that requires investment, then so be it. I think we should also be focused on ensuring that we're skilled enough people to be able to do those tests to ensure that um, that they can be carried out here so that they can be carried out here where, you know, the Irish health system has oversight over them and not outsourced to the American system where, you know, there are some considerable differences and some of them are technical. I'm not going to get into them now. But at the time when the decision was taken to outsource them by the Fianna Fáil government, um, as we all know, Fianna Fáil are very fond of outsourcing. When the decision was taken to outsource by the Fianna Fáil government, it was a political decision. So it wasn't made for clinical reasons and it wasn't made in the best interests of the people who are using that service. Finally, Deputy O'Reilly, do you have any faith in the testing procedure at this moment in time as an, Ir- as an Irish woman? As an Irish woman and someone who uses the cervical check service, I do. I believe that screening works and, you know, the Irish Cancer Society and others will tell you that screening works. What we need to do is get it right. But screening does work and I I would encourage women not to lose faith with the system to get retested if that's what they feel they need, to engage with their GP, to have that conversation with their doctor if they think that they have symptoms. But 
screening does work. It has been proven all over the world that screening is effective. Screening saves lives. It's important that we continue to engage with the system, but it's equally important that the Minister for Health ensures that the system is right and that the system is fit for purpose. Deputy Louise O'Reilly, Sinn Féin spokesperson on health and TD, of course, for Dublin Fingal. We thank you for your time this morning. We're going to be back discussing the presidential election after this. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. 086-1800-658 is our text number. 086-1800-658, which also now serves as our WhatsApp number. We are also available at LMFM Radio on Twitter and across Facebook and Instagram. Kevin Doyle is the group political editor with Independent News and Media and Kevin joins us this morning to discuss the presidential election and what now appears to be a glut of Dragon's Den candidates. Good morning to you, Kevin. Morning, Paul. My TV uh, experience is very limited, Kevin, and I haven't been on Dragon's Den. Does that preclude me from running for president? Um, it, it, it means you're an outsider, I'll put it that way, Carl. You know, we, we, nobody seems to be excluded, which is a, a bizarre uh, scenario that we see playing out in county councils around the country at the minute. But certainly if you were uh, on that particular uh, TV show, if you're an entrepreneur, if you have a couple of million sitting in the bank, uh, it will certainly help you gain profile. It will certainly help you put together a PR team uh, and it'll get you well on your way to challenging Michael D. Higgins. We now have three dragons uh, in in the dragons den, so to speak, of presidential elections. They are Peter Casey, who is the latest to join the party, Gavin Duffy, who was forced in, and Sean Gallagher, who announced uh, was it yesterday or the day before that a 2011 candidate, of course, that he is going to seek nomination to succeed uh, President Michael D. Higgins. Are you surprised that three members of this TV program are now in the race? Oh, it's unprecedented and it's it's bizarre and they're all obviously denying uh, any idea that there's a conspiracy theory or that they're working together. You you probably would have seen or your listeners would have seen uh, the stories yesterday on the front of the Irish Independent when, when Peter Casey came out all guns blazing on Michael D. Higgins, uh, criticising him for um, extolling the virtues of Fidel Castro, Hugo Chavez and the like, saying that he was being paid too much, pretty much a quarter of a million a year Michael D. Higgins was getting. And, and Peter's um, and offered to give his, his money back entirely, his wages. Entirely, yes. To, to, he was going to actually distribute it among county councils and let them give it out to charities. Um, and I suppose the immediate thing that people jumped to from there was perhaps Sean Gallagher is going to play this very straight, seem like a statesman, and have the other two dragons uh, do the running and be the stalking horses who will attack Michael D. Higgins during the campaign. Now, they all deny that. Uh, they all say they stand on their individual platforms. They all stand for different things. Uh, But at the back of it, the three of them all do have messages, which is my experiences around business, around enterprise and around bringing jobs and and representing this country uh, to to foreign employers. So they are very similar candidates. And you do wonder, are they just going, uh, are they going to take Michael D out or are they going to take each other out? Is, Um, is Is there a fear as well that, you know, come the 26th of September, which is the closing day for nominations, that, you know, these guys have done the run of the country and then all of a sudden one remains? It's possible. I, I don't think it, that will happen. I think we will certainly have two out of the three. I think Sean Gallagher uh, will have very little difficulty getting county councils. He already seems to have awfully in the bag. Um, there are six, at least six councils meeting next Monday. I suspect he'll get one of those. He's, he's not going to get me this time because Gavin Duffy has that sewn up, judging by all accounts. And that's where I was going because then Gavin Duffy has Mead. He, uh, from what I saw then in Carlow a couple of weeks ago, I think he has a good shot at getting Carlow County Council. Um, and then uh, Loud would be in play as well, possibly. Uh, so I think Gavin Duffy will get over the line. So I think you'll definitely have Sean Gallagher and, and Gavin Duffy. The questions will be around Peter Casey, uh, much less of a profile, not as well known. He's 
been living in America for, for years. Uh, he's based in Atlanta, but he's moving home now uh, permanently, he says, but certainly to, to run this campaign. Um, so he's the one that might be a question mark over whether or not he gets the council nomination. But if the other two get on the ticket uh, and there are some councils left over, the one thing I've learned in the last few weeks is that county councillors uh, really want to have a say in this. They only get to have a say once every seven years uh, and they all seem to want uh, to, to say that they got to nominate somebody, whether or not they actually uh, would back that person and vote for them on the day of the election or not. Now, Peter didn't do very well in the Senate elections, did he? No, a grand as, total of as you 13 wrote. votes. For, for 10,000 kilometres and 13 votes is what he got on the back end of it. Uh, and I actually asked him about that the other day, to which he said it was a great experience. He never realised how councillors, how hard councillors worked. Uh, and it was a, a learning curve for him. He also tried to run, he had, had floated the idea that he would run for the doll at one point. Now, that never came to, to any real fruition. But he has limited electoral experience and it hasn't been good, Carl, I'll put it that way. If you and I were sitting in the judge's chair in the Dragon's Den and, and three gentlemen came in and one said he's going to remortgage his house to the value of €750,000 and another said, I failed in this business before, I came close uh, back in 2011 uh, and the third one said, uh, I got 13 votes in the Senate. I don't think you and I would be putting our hands in our pockets, Kevin. Well, the great thing is, Carl, is that we're actually, we are sitting in the in the chairs this time around because when it comes to election day, we'll all get to decide whether or not we want one of three, whether we believe one of these can represent us for seven years. It is a long term. And, you know, that's the interesting thing. You vote in politicians, you know you get to vote them out pretty quickly. But the president is above politics. And seven years is a long term. There's always a risk a doll will fall after two or three years. I mean, we're talking about an election now. And the last one was only in 2016 um, in, in terms of the doll. But seven years uh, looking at Sean Gallagher or Gavin Duffy, that's what people will have to weigh up. We've already had seven years of Michael D. Higgins. Do people want another seven? Um, so we're in the chair, and you're right. As it stands, uh, I suspect Michael D is sitting in Oris and Uteron uh, uh, and quite enjoying the spectacle uh, that's happening around him. He didn't want a contest. He wanted a coronation. He wanted nobody to run against him. But as it's playing out now, I, I suspect he'll be looking at it and thinking that there isn't anybody that's causing him particular concern at this stage. Probably Sean Gallagher is the closest to it because you have to think Sean Gallagher has probably put more thought than anybody uh, into it, this because he has probably the most to lose. We've always looked at Sean Gallagher as somebody that maybe, well, many people would believe had the election stolen from him with what happened with Tweetgate and Orty have apologised for all that and paid him a substantial payout uh, down the courts. Um, so people have looked at him as kind of someone who, who missed out or perhaps was cheated. Uh, that narrative changes. If he doesn't, if he doesn't get across the line this time, well, then maybe we look at it as. Didn't we have a near miss? Didn't we get away? Weren't we lucky to have Michael D the first time round? But what has he done, unless I've been paying too much attention to World Cups, etc., over those seven years? But what has Sean Gallagher done in the last seven years since he finished second? He got, uh, what was it, 30, 30, 39.6% was Michael D's vote, 28.5% was Sean Gallagher's. What has Sean done in the last seven years to persuade me to vote for him as president? Yeah, he got over half a million votes, which is a massive amount of votes if you still, if you think about it. Half a million uh, votes when he kind of came from nowhere last time out as well um, and you probably have been paying too much attention to World Cups to be honest Carl but um, that hasn't stopped you from missing things with John Gallagher because he has been very very quiet um, he has been active in business he's been involved in a number of pharma companies property companies uh, he has been adding to his portfolio um, presumably adding to his bank balance but he hasn't really had a public persona he hasn't had a, a, a public 
he hasn't been speaking out, shall we say, on things like the homeless crisis or what's happening in the property sector. He hasn't been doing that. He has been doing tours. Uh, he has a book out on on, on success. Uh, he has been a personal speech, personal given personal speeches on motivation, uh, talking to companies like that, giving advice to startup companies. Uh, but no great shakes in the public arena. He hasn't been. T- we haven't seen him popping up on radio stations or on television to give his view of the world. Uh, and that in itself is interesting. And I think for that reason, many of the questions which dogged him during the 2011 campaign are about to resurface uh, in the next couple of weeks. He hasn't um, actually sat down in front of you guys yet, has he? He hasn't. No, it's been very cloak and dagger. I mean, we, we had hint after hint that he was going to enter the race. And I suppose we were somewhat sceptical for all those reasons that I've outlined as to why he would. Um, but he, no, he hasn't sat down in front of journalists. And there has been some commentary on that and that it's, it's, he's saying he wants to focus on councillors until he gets the nomination and then he'll come talk to us guys. Um, he'll get away with that for a little while, but not too long, I think, because there are so many questions. I mean, the accusation back in 2011 was that he was a Fianna Fáil bag man. Uh, Fianna Fáil aren't putting up a candidate this time. Uh, we've already seen an Offaly where eight Fianna Fáil councillors have come together to give him the nomination. So that's getting him the first county council in the bag there. Um, so all those questions, is he a de facto Fianna Fáil candidate? They're going to come back on the table very, very quickly. So I, I think Sean Gallagher can only stay in hiding for, for so long. Do we expect him to appear in front of one of the councils next week? Loud, for example, our meeting on Wednesday. I know me, they're going to vote on Monday and he may have run out of time to, to address them. But do you expect to see him in front of a council next week? Uh, well, I think Mead, we can discount Mead because uh, Gavin Duffy mm. has that sewn up as far as is what my understanding is. So he won't be going there. He's not going to go anywhere that he's not going to win. Uh, there are, as I say, about half a dozen on, on Monday. Um, and speaking to people last night, uh, my understanding is that he's weighing it up over the weekend. He'll be tic-tacking with councillors. And wherever he thinks he's going to win uh, is where he'll show up on Monday. So he'll definitely be somewhere on Monday. My money is probably on Leitrim, uh, of all places, uh, would be where you might find Sean Gallagher on Monday. But Wicklow, Wexford also meeting this potential there for him. Uh, in terms of Loud, um yeah, Gavin Duffy would have a big shout in loud as well. So it'd be very, I don't know is the short answer. They're mm. being coy about it, but you, I don't know if they want the spectacle of Duffy versus Gallagher this early in the campaign because they would have to both make their pitches to councils that they would both hope to win. I'm going to ask you in a second about Sinn Féin and who their prospective candidate might be, and that might indeed have a loud connection. Me, last Monday, uh, councillors were, were met by eight of the prospective candidates, including Sarah Louise Mulligan, who promised again that if Donald Trump arrives into Ireland, she will dress as Marilyn Monroe as president to greet him. Have you read anything into this, Kevin? Um, <laughs> I don't know if I've read things into it. I've certainly <laughs> written things about it. Um, I, I think we have a problem here. And in some ways, the council system is brilliant because it opens up that the idea of becoming president or running for president is open to everybody. Me and you, well, I'm too young, Carl, I couldn't, but you I'm could not. run from, <laughs> You could, uh, you're you could, over You could that. be my press advisor, Kevin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you, you could, you're over that threshold. You could go forward and, and put your name there. Now, on the flip side of it, you will need about three quarters of a million euro, which is why you see all these businessmen uh, going for it rather than, than mere journalists. I'd make a pitch um, to Dragon's Den, Kevin, that's what I'd do. Yeah, yeah, to look for some seed funding. <laughs> yes. But there, look, there is, it is great in a sense that the councils do this because it is a vetting process and people have to prove that they have some legitimacy in wanting to be present. On the flip side, I, I do have some concerns about the what the councillors have to put up with, sitting there for two, three, four hours listening to some people who have no real platform, um, have no real chance um, and, you know, you do kind of wonder, should there be a, a preliminary betting 
session before uh, councillors who have a, a, a job to do and I know they often get slagged off and, and, and talk, people talk about their expenses and their travel and all the rest of it but they have better things to be doing in some instances and I think listening to some of these candidates who I suspect are there in the hope that they might get their picture in the paper. Well, there was a couple of options. One was to build a railway line from Galway to uh, Galway to Navan, and the other was to build another footbridge over the Boyne and a boardwalk in the Boyne. So that all came up on Monday. A Lewis to Connemara. And a, and a Lewis to Connemara, yep. Yeah, which I'm not sure has anything to do with the presidential uh, office. But anyhow, Sinn Féin, Kevin, where are we with Sinn Féin and all of this? Well, they are playing their own game. Um, and uh, I'm nearly loath to give it too much attention because they're stringing us out uh, holding back uh, the 16th of September is the date that they have uh, settled on to announce their candidate. They put a process in place for, for selecting somebody. Two names effectively at the top of the list, uh, one being John Finucane and the other being Leon Irida. Now, a couple of others kind of circulate underneath that, but they're the two that sit up there at the top. Um, there's some talk around Leinster House yesterday that now that the writ has been moved slightly earlier, uh, we had expected that we wouldn't be getting a date until we were into September, that they might move things forward, but no clear indication of that yet. What if Jerry Adams was to stand? I don't think there is any chance that Jerry Adams will stand because uh, Sinn Féin are trying to present this new face that they have somewhat moved on uh, from that past. And while they are proud of Jerry Adams and what they believe Jerry Adams has achieved, I think it would drag them back uh, into a very dark debate that they don't want to have anymore. Uh, the Sinn Féin advice, Mary Lou has been atonished, um, and I think they've moved away from this idea that that, that it's better to to live up to the boys in the, in the north and what they might think. So I don't think Jerry Adams is, is a real potential. Much and all, as he might like the fun of a campaign. He does very well on a campaign uh, in the, in the sense that people like him. He that they're mad for the selfies. I've seen it myself. Uh, he, he tracks well when he goes around the country, but I don't think on this occasion that Jerry Adams is going to be a player. Kevin Doyle, Group Political Editor with the Independent News and Media Group. Thank you so much for your time this morning. We're going to be back after this. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. And as always, we welcome your texts to 086-1800-658, 086-1800-658. Marie will be in with us a little later to go through your comments on any issues raised today and over the week. And of course, we will be looking back at the education problem in Kildalki, where parents have struggled to get their kids onto school buses. Una Sors will be joining us after 10 o'clock to discuss a meeting in the village last night as children still await bus passes from Irnra, bus, bus Air, and I suppose it is at this stage, but... We will be looking at that story after 10 o'clock. The front page of the Irish Sun this morning. Smug shot. Downfall of top mobster. An eight-page special on the life and crimes of fat Freddie Thompson who was found guilty yesterday at the Special Criminal Court of the 2016 execution of David Dotty Douglas. Fat Freddie has been jailed for life. Joining us to discuss this is crime editor with the Irish Sun, Stephen Breen. Stephen, good morning to you. Good morning. Stephen, can I ask you first of all about David Dotty Douglas, who he was and how he became involved in the Hutch Keenan feud? Yeah, but David Dotty Douglas was himself uh, involved in organised crime uh, from, from a young age. He previously served time for um, being uh, involved in, with the, the IRA. Um, before the ceasefire, um, he's someone who got involved in drugs, he's someone who got involved in criminality. Um, he would have been associated with the, the Hutch faction of the ongoing Kenahan-Hutch uh, feud. 
Um, but in, around the time of his death, um, in, in the months before that, there he, he was seen as someone who wasn't really involved in organised crime. He had sort of focused on working with his um, his wife in, in, in the shoe shop that they run in the south of the city. So, in a sense, he, he had turned his back on an organised crime. You know, someone tried to kill him uh, just uh, in November uh, 2015, a uh, number of months before he was eventually shot dead. But in relation to this incident, um, it was in the midst of the whole Kinahan Hutch feud, and the, um, the 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 Kinahan guy had information that they had intelligence that Douglas wasn't was involved in an attempt to kill a senior member of the Kinahan cartel. Uh, that and during that incident, the the, the, the member of the, the Kinahan gang survived that 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 attack. So, um, when Douglas was, was living in the, in the south inner city, he would have been an easy target for Freddie Thompson. So the Kinahan gang had this information that he was involved in, in an attempt to kill one of their own gang members. So they put together this murder bid. Freddie Thompson's role in it was, uh, he, was he didn't pull the trigger. His job was to mastermind and identify possible targets. But what they didn't know is that um, they had this information, but they had absolutely no evidence that Douglas was, was involved in, in an attempt to kill one of their own gang members because uh, throughout the guard, the guard investigation, Guardy actually established that Douglas was in a pub in North Dublin on the, the night that they accused him of trying to kill one of the Kinahan gang members. So, so he wasn't at he wasn't at the scene. No, he wasn't there. So their information was wrong. And in this sense, uh, like like many times before, and even as we've seen during this feud, another innocent man has been killed. This happened uh, at a stage in his life when David Dotty Douglas was fifty five. He was in his wife's kids' shoe shop. I mean, he was having mm-hmm. his lunch. He, was he sitting at the counter eating a sandwich? Or he was eating a curry actually, and he'd been he'd been there all day. And then during the court proceedings, you know, we we heard yesterday when the judge was summing up that um, he it was just a normal day. He was interacting with members of the public. He was interacting with other uh, business owners who, who worked in the area. He wasn't under any type of threat. I mean, if he was a member of the Hutch gang or was involved in that feud. The last place you'd want to be is working in a Kinahan stronghold in the south inner city. So he was just in the shop when a gunman ran in, uh, fired six shots, hitting him in the head, the face, the, the elbow, uh, and the chest. And uh, you know, the, because the, the court said that you know, he would have been under surveillance by the guy, the guy would also have known that his daughter was in the shop at the time. So they showed complete disregard for her. For him and the gunman how, how, walked how in. Old, how old was she at the time, Stephen? She's a, a, a teenager, you know, and she was there. She's the one that found him lying in the pool of blood. And when the, the gunman executed him, uh, you know, he just left the gun beside his head, you know, casually walked out the door and then into a getaway vehicle. Now, this will shock listeners, but I mean, you've covered the, this story for so many years now and, and for so well with the Irish Sun. So, does anything in this shock you, Stephen? Well, it, it, it doesn't, I mean, when you're talking about Freddie Thompson, you're talking about someone who's been heavily steeped in organised crime from a very young age. And the only thing that's, that, that's shocking here is the fact that, you know, um, he was someone who had been linked to other murders, but he'd never been convicted of murder. But now he has because he played a key role in it. But it, it, it's not shocking for the, the Kinahan guy to go into his shop in broad daylight and kill a man when, when his daughter's there. I mean, they've killed many innocent people uh, over the years, even just in 2016, just a, a few weeks after um, Dotty Douglas was shot there. They murdered Trevor O'Neill in, in Spain in front of his family. So it's not shocking in, in that sense. And Trevor's, Trevor's family still haven't got any answers, have they? No answers, no. And this is just a broad daylight, you know, that the intent was there. But what's shocking about this is like that they did that, they carried it out in broad daylight, but it shows you their, their, their total disregard for uh, humanity, for, for human life. When afterwards, 
Thompson and, and the, the members of, of that hit team went uh, for a slap up meal in Dublin City Centre and they were caught on CCTV giving each other high fives, slapping each other on the back. So they were proud of their actions that day. This was almost a celebration. It was. It was a celebration. It's, it's, it's a place they've been they've frequented in the past. They were in the, the city centre and they were caught on the CCTV and, and when the guardie recovered the footage from the restaurant, so they, they were there and celebrating, as they see it, a good day's work. Now, Fat Freddy wasn't actually convicted of shooting um, no. the Dotty on Douglas, but he was convicted of masterminding the attack. Yes, he was. That that was his job within the Kinnahan cartel because he'd been, you know, associated with the Kinnahan gang over many years. Um, and he and Freddie is also someone who survived the Crumlin Drum this year. There were sixteen young men that lost their lives, and he was directly involved in that as well. But he was given a specific role by the Kinnahan gang as part of their onslaught against the Hutch gang and their associates. Was his job was because he had the experience of surviving a, a gangland feud. And he had access to weapons. I mean, we, we, we write myself, my colleague and I, Owen Cullen, wrote about him in our book. We couldn't identify him as Mr. A, but, you know, he's Mr. A, where he would have undergone bodyguard training, he would have undergone firearms training. So his job in the Kinnan Hutch feud was a senior position, was to target individuals for murder. And he's also a person of interest, shall we put it, in at least 13 other murders. 13 other murders, Gardy believed that he had direct involvement in uh, the planning, the execution, I mean, and uh, that he would have provided logistics for cars. And, and some of those murders, just like in the Douglas murder, he would have been in the area at the time, you know, that, that Gardy established that, although he wasn't a gunman, he wasn't in a car, he would have been in the area. And he would have interacted with Gardy on very many occasions and spoke about you know, people who'd been killed in, in, a, in a derogatory sense where he, he would, you know, be laughing and, and joking, you know, about killings. And there, was just, there just wasn't enough evidence against him. But this investigation and, you know, trawling through 2,000 hours of CCTV by the Guardian at Kevin Street, it, it just shows you that, you know, even though he didn't pull the trigger, he's complicit, you know, he's a central part of the murder and he's now doing life. Finally, Stephen, and very briefly, how long will he spend in jail? Well, Cal, there are no tariffs system uh, down here on like the north. So, you know, I remember someone asked me this yesterday where, for example, um, you, ha- you have uh, Michael Bambrick who was jailed for life for murdering two women. He was out after 15 years. So, look, he could be out in 15. He could be out in 20. He has the right to uh, uh, appeal. He's doing the appeal. And he is, is, as barrister indicated yesterday, he's going to appeal the sentence. So we'll have to see how that goes. But if he does life, then hopefully 15 to 20 years. Stephen Brain, crime editor with the Irish Sun and a best-selling author. His book uh, will now be required reading in the light of yesterday's court decision. But Stephen Brain, we thank you for your time this morning. Eight-page special on the downfall of Fat Freddy in the Irish Sun today. We'll be back with the news headlines after these. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. And you are welcome back to the Michael Reed Show. The weather forecast there, Marie, saying that it will be dry on Saturday for electric picnic. Uh, my brother Donald and Lorna are on their way. Were you there? I was. Did you enjoy it? I did. I enjoyed most of it. The toilet facilities didn't so much enjoy. You, but you, you need it, to be glamping, would you? Yeah, you see, I I'm, I wasn't a glamper. I mm. went down to basics and mm. I was in the ordinary tent with the ordinary <laughs> Joe soaps. We're ordinary men and women, Marie, that's what <laughs> exactly, it is. Exactly, but yeah. I mean, the music... 
fantastic. The atmosphere, fantastic. And I only went a couple of years ago, so I said, I'm going to try everything in life. So that was one of the things that well, was on the bucket list. I and might. I said, here I go, I'll go. But sure. the next time, I would like to go again, but I'll try and get into a B&B somewhere nearby, mm. I think. <laughs> I also struggle to recognise some of the bands, although Niall Rogers from Cheek, who we'd remember from our youth, is one of would the headliners. Would I you, would you, Carl? Yeah, yes. Cheek and, and uh, Sister Sledge. And he was brilliant. He was on New Year's Eve last year on BBC and he was excellent. So anyhow, comments, how are we doing? Yes, some like lots coming in on a variety of topics the obviously the cervical smear situation is worrying a lot of people and annoying a lot of people Lorraine phoned in from Dundalk and she says the government quite rightly slates the Catholic Church for the way it's dealing with the child sex abuse uh, scandal and that's you know that's to be admired however they should also look at themselves when it comes to the controversy surrounding the cervical smear test scandal. It was a money-making or money-saving exercise, says Lorraine, I feel, in relation to where these smear tests were checked. And she says, there is no way now that the women affected should have to go through the court system, she feels, and it needs to be resolved. And she feels that perhaps if it were men, maybe things would be speeded. You know, it would go quicker. Another listener, Marie from Drada, also phoned in and she says, I always get my smear tests done when I should, but I think it's an absolute joke now that the backlog is such that tests are actually going out of date. Why have more personnel not been assigned to deal with the flood of tests in the wake of this controversy? There was always going to be an increase because people were getting repeats tests done, the women were getting repeats uh, tests done and she says we need to have faith in the system but I do agree with your speaker that was Deputy um, Louise O'Reilly that people should still continue or women should still continue to get screened. That was a very important message from Deputy O'Reilly earlier. Absolutely because it is the only way to detect something earlier on. Now we're going to go back to a story that we had earlier in the week when we spoke if you remember Marita Una Swords who's a parent from Kildalki and Una was struggling because her two children were going to school in Trim but couldn't get places on the school buses. There was a meeting in Kildalki last night. That's right. And I'm delighted to say Una is on the phone. Una, good morning to you. Good morning, Carl. How are you? Tell us about last night's meeting, but first of all, Una, tell us, have your, your daughters, Quiva and Aoife, got a place on the bus yet? I'm afraid nobody has been uh, got any uh, response from Bus Iron at all. Um, we've all been chasing them. Uh, they haven't come back to us. It's just been the usual letter from Siobhan Griffin, who's the regional manager, um, going on about concessionary tickets. So we're still at, at square one. You know, we so, haven't got any further down the track, I'm afraid. So Quiva and Aoife went back to school in Trim this week. They did indeed, yeah. And, you, and you've um, had to make alternative arrangements to get them there. Yes, I've been carpooling with a couple of the neighbours here. Do you know what I mean? And um, we're kind of struggling really with it because... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Some people are not around because they're working full time, you know, and not everybody has a seven seater. 
you know, so it's very, very difficult to try and get everybody in on time and also to get get the children home. Now, Aoife had been on the bus for four years, you were telling us earlier in the week, and Quiva was starting in, in first year in trim. You're not the only parents in this situation. That's correct, yeah. Um, another family, um, again, they have two children on the bus. Um, the, the younger son, he actually got a ticket, which is good. But the older son, like um, Aoife, he was also on the bus since 2014. But they actually gave him a ticket from Beliver. Now, Beliver is seven, seven kilometres away from here. You know, this bus literally is just coming up the main street of our village and is on our doorstep. So I don't understand why Bus Aaron are issuing a ticket like that. So they want him to go from Kildalki to Beliver yeah. to Trim. Yeah. When it's so easier to go from Kildalki to Trim. So they're expecting his mom to, you know, run him down to Beliver. Look, if she was going to drive to Beliver, she might as well drive to Trim. And she's also, she's also dropping her other child to the bus in Kildalki. Yes, and she has a, a, another child in National School. Now, you had a public meeting in Kildalki last night. How, how did that go? Um, I think it went well. Uh, we wanted the parents who are in fifth and sixth class to be made aware of the situation because at the moment, you know, there, there are nine, well, nine first years who have no tickets. So, you know, doing the maths and whatever, talking about the amount of children that are on the bus who will probably be leaving, you know, taking their leaving cert next year, you know, there is going to be another situation very similar to what we have at the moment, unless this is resolved. And you can't get an answer out of Bus Aaron. Not at all. They don't want to know. What happens next, Una? Um, well, we're, we're, we're thinking now we, we're going to have to kind of up the, the game as such, uh, Cahill, you know, and um, uh, Heather Tobin has, has been very helpful. He's, he's been on trying to get in touch with the minister. Um, he's been chasing him the last few days, you know, um, he's not really getting anywhere because I think um, Minister John Halligan just really doesn't want to know because, I've, you know, this is a nationwide problem, judging by what I've heard, you know. Um, Shane Castle says also he's been pursuing him. Um, he's uh, also had, he's made representations on our behalf uh, several times, I believe. Right. And he's also been um, in conversation, I think, with them. Um, Thomas Byrne, who's their education spokesman in connection with the concessionary tickets to try and get something sorted out. You know, if you have a ticket that you'll have that until you finish school, but they cannot take you off the bus, you know. Any response from the government ministers in the area? Um, No. No. As yet? No, not yet. Other than that, yeah. Una, you might keep in touch with us because I'm sure this is a subject we will return to, but uh, for you and for the other parents in Kildalki, this must be a great worry. It is, yeah, because we, we really feel that we're not being taken seriously at all. You know, we're, we are a rural community. We do depend completely on this service, you know, um, and they just really don't want to know anything about it. Una Sors, thank you for joining us yes, this morning. That's you. Una Sors from Kildalki, where a number of local children have no place on the school bus. Marie, this isn't just Kildalki. It's not. It's it's ripe all over the country. And I mean, last year, I think it was Beliver that was the area affected. And we have had some response, just I suppose people were n- knowing that we were covering this. And I know we're going to touch on it mm. with Deputy Thomas Byrne shortly. But uh, a listener says, Deborah from Meath. And I thought this was an interesting point. My daughter didn't get a place in the school that's closest to us. So she had to go to a school that's further away in a, in, a, in a different location. And you are effectively punished for that by the school bus scheme because the child is not going to the closest school. 
So that's the point that she wanted to make. Another listener says every year there's a problem with the school bus places. Uh, last year it was Beliver, says this listener is Katrina from Slane. But yet she says it's never addressed. I think it's a scheme that needs a complete overhaul. Remember, the parents pl- pay substantially towards this. And she says uh, she has a child on the bus at the moment with a concessionary ticket. But there's always a fear that that's going to be taken mm. off them if the numbers increase. So every year you're worried and that there's going to be a problem. And Una had said to us earlier in the week that you pay up front for the bus, whether you get the ticket or you don't get the ticket, you have to pay the money up front. And it's crazy that situation about the parent, that the eldest son has to go to Beliver to get the school bus. The youngest son has a place on the school bus, which the son, the eldest son previously had. And then the parent also has to get to a national school. You just, you just wonder. How how could you do all that in the morning and then maybe have to go in and do a full day's work uh, organising all that transport? It's it's tough. And I'm sure we're going to be here. I don't think they're going to take this line down. They had that meeting last night. I believe there were about 40 meeting. It was called 40 at the meeting. It was called very last minute. And, you know, it's a small enough area. So we'll keep an eye on that story. Just we to will. say that I was on to bus air and myself as well, Carl. And it was that generic response mm. that I got. One size fits all. One size fits all. I'll go back. Have we time for a couple of more comments? Just in relation to the presidential race, uh, Seamus from Dundalk says, it's become a joke, Carl. An absolute joke. Uh, What are the three dragons doing in the race? It's just hard to comprehend. I believe in democracy, but come on, say Seamus. I think we're up to around 14 candidates now. (laughs) Yes. Are we? Sean, I've lost count. Uh, Sean from Drogheda on the same topic says, I think... The three dragons are definitely in cahoots. This is planned and it's annoying me. I had been thinking about voting for Gavin Duffy if he gets the nomination, but now there are two more dragons declared. I'm just wondering to myself what is going on. After all, they are all friends, Cahill. Have they planned this? What's behind it? Sean is wondering. So there's lots of conspiracy theories going around. What what do you call a collection of dragons? I don't know. (laughs) I'm sure people could think of some apt names there. I'm not going to begin. Uh, another listener, a text says, amazed that three dragons are trying to get into Miggledee's den. But the best part is that the voters get to choose which three are out. So there you go. And that's, of course, the reference to the, as, the dragons. As we discussed yes. with Kevin Doyle earlier in the programme. So look, we'll finish on that. I have a couple of more. And if I get a chance, I'll we'll, sneak we'll, back we'll in at some stage. 086 658 as always, our text number. It's also our WhatsApp number. And we're across Twitter at LMFM Radio is our Twitter handle. We will be talking after the break to De- Deputy Thomas Byrne about educational concerns in Ashburn amongst other subjects. All that after this. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now you're welcome back to the Michael Reed Show. Cahill Dervin sitting in this week. 086 658 is our text number. And as you will have heard before the break, we were talking to Una Swords from Kildalki, whose two children are having problems uh, getting places on a school bus to go to school where they're in a trim. We also heard the story where one parent in Kildalki has been given a ticket from Beliver to Trim and a ticket from Kildalki to Trim for her two sons and of course the problems that that is causing. Deputy Thomas Byrne is the Fianna Fáil TD uh, for Mead East and is also education spokesman for the party and Deputy Th- Byrne joins us in studio this morning. You're welcome Deputy. Thank, thanks very much Carl. What do you say to the like of Una Swords who's having these transport problems? It's not just in Kildalki. No, no, there are school transport problems everywhere and I, I couldn't go to the meeting last night. I was at a different public meeting in Curaha. Um, 
the issue is if if you live more than 4.8 kilometres from the nearest post-primary school and you're in that school and there are at least 10 kids in the general locality, you're entitled to a bus to the mm. school. So that's the simple issue. Mm. So if you're, if you're not within the, the locality for that school or, you know, you're less than 4.8 and you get a, you, you get what's called a concessionary ticket, the big problem with that at the moment and one that we have pledged to address is that you can lose that ticket from year to year. Uh, and what I'm saying is, and what Fina Fowler is saying is, for a very small extra cost, we worked it out about one and a half million quid every year. Like that, that's the entire cost of this. That if, it, we would for say, the whole country. For the whole country. We would say that if you get a, a concessionary ticket in first year, or of secondary or junior infants or whatever your first that should year be primary, for your school life. Th- th- then you become a, a, an eligible student for the rest of your school life and th- to me that makes sense I think to everybody that makes sense there are rules there there always have to be rules there uh, but I can't see how you could you know the idea of losing a ticket or losing a ticket for one child is absolutely crazy so we call it the school bus guarantee we think that would go some way uh, towards resolving the issues there are other issues as well there is the issue of the minimum number of 10 kids in a locality to, to get uh, have a school bus in the area. Now, that has increased in recent years, but I do know that last year there were exceptions made in relation to that. So I think Bus Aaron need to be called out on that say, look, you did make exceptions last year on, on the minimum number, if that's the issue, and, and please do so again this year. But the, the situation in Kildalki where the, the, the mother whose two sons, the, the child that was given the ticket from Beliver instead of Kildalki, actually had a seat on the bus. His younger brother is now starting school in Trim. The younger brother has got the seat from Kildalki, mm. and the elder brother has been told to go to Beliver. I mean, that's, but that's to be honest with you, like, that's a consumer issue. That's Bus Aaron just not managing the system mm. properly. I mean, that is just, someone in the Department of Education just needs to get a grip of Bus Aaron and say, look, you've got to provide good customer service. You've got to be sensible about this. You can't just have the tickets spewing off a computer in a random fashion. It seems to happen in other areas as well. So I, that's what I'd be appealing as Bus, Bus Aaron really to answer those questions because that, that, is, that is how they actually manage the system and they're managing it badly. And as parents will tell you, it's very hard to get in touch with them. It's hard for us to get in touch them. They seem to have one member of staff answering our queries who answers them at all hours of the day and night, in fairness to her. Uh, but she clearly is under-resourced there. And I think a lot of the issues with bus transport could be resolved if there was better customer service in bus air and if there was a little bit of flexibility on the minimum number of pupils, uh, which, which they've certainly shown in recent years, uh, and if we gave that, if the school bus guarantee that Fianna Fáil's proposed was introduced, I think would solve practically all so of them. So once you get a ticket in the first year... Uh, another issue though, Kyle, is say in Mideast particularly... There's a lot of new secondary schools have started. So you have a new school in Johnstown, you have a new school in Ashburn, uh, Gormanson College came into the public sector as well. And that has changed the, the, the nearest the school, the dynamic. And I have appealed to Bus Aaron every year, please let parents know that this is the, the nearest school for your child at an early stage during the year. And I don't think they've done that. Mm-hmm. So you have people from uh, Ardcath, for example, who might be nearer to Ashbourne, but one part of Ardcath might be nearer to Gormison. And that has become an issue for parents as well. And I think if there was more information about that, uh, that would solve a lot of those issues because this tends to come as a shock to parents during the summer. And this will continue to happen. There's a new secondary school opening, maybe to leak, maybe outside Drogheda and Eastmead. And that's going to cause other problems as well because that will suddenly become the nearest school for some people who didn't realise it. And of course, with the building that's gone in East Mead at the moment and Mead East, this is going to going to magnify. Yeah, there will. Years. And, and the, the, I say there's at least one secondary school coming, and there may well be another one in South Mead as well. Now, one of the other issues in in your constituency that you've brought to our attention is the the, the case in Ashburn where some parents, especially those from non-Irish backgrounds, have been unable to get a junior infant place at the primary school in the area. Yeah, and five primary schools in, in, in Ashburn and other schools in the area too. This is an issue that I've been on this show about over the last number of years. It's an issue that I've raised the doll after I got elected. It's an issue that I've met officials with 
on a number of occasions. It's an issue that following my representations, those officials met uh, the five principals in Ashburn actually there just before the summer, before the schools were out. And, you know, while all the assurances are given that everything is sorted and they're going to come up with a permanent solution for Ashburn in October, this is being told at a meeting on Wednesday at the Dáil. During that meeting, I got an email from a constituent whose little brother uh, couldn't get into a primary school. Uh, and this wouldn't be the first case that has hit my office about that. And what the department is doing is giving them a list of schools in the surrounding area, in areas like Garrison or Curraha, Cushionstown aren't that far away from Ashburn. But still, I think people uh, want to go to school in their own town with their own friends, etc., and people from their own football clubs. And there are five schools there, uh, and it would seem reasonable that they could do that. One of the schools offered was Rutbegan, which is a fantastic school, but it's about 10 miles away uh, from, from where this individual lives. So this And is there's pro- no public transport from Ashburn to Rutbegan? No, there's not. No, no. Absolutely not. And uh, it's just uh, most people and let's say new people to Ashburn wouldn't know Red Began, let's be honest. Why do you say particularly, or why is it said that it's particularly non-Irish background? Well, I think it's, it's, what I say is people with non-Irish surnames, you know, Mm. and obviously the children are Irish citizens. In many cases, the parents are too. But in in the particular case I spoke about this week, an older brother wrote to me, I suspect, because possibly the parents Mm. maybe wouldn't have this uh, English English to write. And that's that's my experience with it. There could well be reasons for that. People are new to the area. Um, People are you know, not really experienced with the Irish school system and maybe just been left uh, on the side. But there are local people in Ashburn who've been there a long time who've also suffered from this particular issue or are sending kids up to um, Kilcoskin in North Dublin or to Garristown or to Curraghan. They're, I say, fantastic schools, uh, but they would probably like to have their children educated in Ashburn. And I think what's, what's needed is a plan. The department have been talking to me for the last number of years and officials simply haven't got their act together on this. And it's simply not fair. And, the, you know, there are there are lots of houses being built in Ashburn. Anyone would... would two eyes could see that over the last number of years we've been telling officials in the department about this and they've ignored it and even when they announced 42 new schools uh, in in April Ashburn wasn't on the list and it's just somebody just needs to get a grip of the department if I were there I'd be telling them just sort this out you can see it, you can see this in Dunshockland where there are hundreds of houses being built and there's going to, thousands of houses going to be built and there are plans for a new school but already the schools in Dunshockland full to capacity. Yeah, and, and Dunshockland was another one I, I was raising. I was glad that was in the list of 42 mm. schools in, in April, but there's there's no identity of a site. There's no, I don't think the patronage process has started, so there's a lot of uncertainty about those mm. schools that they did announce. I think again, I know I think I know where it's going to be built, but anyway, we, we, we'll come idea, back to that but in the sorry, future. But the, but the department have, <laughs> have not decided. bought a site, yeah. you know, that's yeah. the bottom line. What's the answer? The answer is better forward planning. The department say that they have better forward planning. They don't, and they need to. They need to actually drive round. I was glad when I spotted some of the officials from the department in Ashburn, but I invited them to do that a number of years ago. I think they, they should just drive round areas where houses being built, get up to date information from the local authorities, which in fact they were not getting. They weren't getting details of, say, a, a housing estate with thirty houses in it. They were only getting details of large estates, and in Ashburn there's quite a number of small uh, developments being built. So there was a lot of flaws. Now they say they've got the act together but I'm not convinced and they need to get the act together because this is going to be a recurring feature in various areas there are houses being built in Retote, Ashburn all over I even see uh, Garristown beside Ashburn there's a new housing estate up there as well so so all of these rural schools are going to start filling up again and you'll see more one-off houses being built in the countryside as well local people returning to their area so they just need to get their act together in the department and make sure there's provision there for all the children There is an Oireachtas uh, education meeting ongoing this week and of course we, we heard earlier in the week on the programme where one of the biggest problems for parents and the National Parents Council have brought this to Oireachtas is the voluntary contribution 76% of parents are now being asked for voluntary contributions this goes back to 2010 and the capitation grants being cut. 
you're not happy about the voluntary contributions. Well, the vol- look, the voluntary contributions have always been there and I think no one would mind them if they actually were voluntary and if people really didn't feel any compulsion to pay them and quite a lot of people probably would pay them if they were voluntary and, and they could afford them. So I, I'm, I'm not trying to stop them as such. What I'm trying to make sure is that they are voluntary. And the, the first way of ensuring uh, that schools can only have voluntary contributions is to make sure that schools are actually paid the amount of money that they need to run schools. So there have been various cuts to the capitation since 2010. Obviously during the recession there were cuts. But now that the recession is over, I think it is time, and as we've already stated publicly that it is a budgetary priority for us to make sure that schools have enough money to run their services, to pay their bills, to do their maintenance. Um, there, there are some schools, for example, some new schools who, when, when they were in rented prefabs, in some cases there was a contract with the prefab owner to maintain them and to do, do them up, etc. That's changed now when they go into new buildings, they're fairly complicated heating systems, etc. Cleaning bills too is a major issue for a lot of new schools. We have a lot of new schools in, in media. So we've got to make sure that schools do get enough capitation and that then uh, the objective of that then is to take the pressure off parents because they're under severe pressure at the moment. So all I'm saying, I'm flagging this, we have flagged this to Fine Gael, if the ministers are listening to the show, which I'm sure they are, uh, this would be one of our... And there were promises made in 2016. Well, I mean, it's in the, the programme for government, but they haven't acted on it. Mm. And we thought they would do it last year, they didn't. So they're going to have to do it this year and bring some uh, money back into schools so that schools can actually run themselves. And they're not there begging bringing in loose change every Friday, etc. as many schools we, do. We've read this week again at this Oireachtas uh, committee meeting where some parents have been asked to bring toilet rolls into school for their children. Yeah. yeah in, ex- in extreme cases, In extreme course, cases, yeah. that's happening. And look, we will always be helping out in our schools. We will always be bringing them in. And if parents can afford it, we will always be giving extra to our schools if we can. But it should never be compulsory. It needs to be voluntary. And schools need to be, first of all, able to get the money that they need from the state. Should it be anonymous? Oh, absolutely, yeah. It should be anonymous. Um, I, I, I mean, look, to, to a large degree, only one or two people in any school will know about the voluntary contribution or who paid or who didn't. But I think it should be completely anonymous so that that pressure is removed entirely. But I don't think we can do that until schools are properly funded uh, from, from the taxpayer. Uh, and I think if it is anonymous, they will still, there will still be a lot of parents who will contribute voluntarily and also do the fundraisers, etc. They're not going to end. Your own party has said that education is going to be a huge focus of the budget. How are you getting on in talks with the government at the moment? Well, uh, seeing as you hold the power with this government, well, you see, that's allegedly. I mean, look, we, we, we have a certain amount of influence and we try to use that influence to the best of our ability. Obviously, health and, and the health situation, the homeless situation, uh, housing is going to, are going to be the key areas. But we want to make sure that education is not forgotten. And that's why I think we have flagged last year pupil-teacher ratio. A lot of schools are getting extra teachers uh, in uh, this September because of our, you know, our influence in the government. And I think this year in the budget we have flagged a number of issues, but one of them, as I just said, is the capitation. So, so look, those talks are starting. I think there will be some talks next week, but they'll go on right up until the eve of the budget. Uh, and we want to make sure that there is a, you know, evidence that we had an influence in that budget that we're not just giving tax cuts to the rich, but actually trying to improve public services, whether it be housing, whether it be the health service, which where it's critically needed, and the education service as well. Just before you go, can I ask you about the the papal visit and Minister Zappone's presentation on the mother and baby home, amongst other things? The state has yet to really take acceptance of its role in all of this. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, I have no problem with what uh, Catherine Zappone said. I publicly praised what Leo Radker said, to, uh, you know, on, on Saturday. I was there at the Mass on Sunday, myself and my family. We had a fantastic day, I have to say that. Um, uh, but I think there is an element of hypocrisy from the government, um, despite agreeing with, with their sentiments, uh, as what they said at the weekend. For example, in the education system, there are uh, mainly men out there uh, who were sexually abused in schools in Ireland, 
uh, in particular cases where the European Court of Human Rights has said that the Irish government is responsible. So this is an issue that affects the religious orders directly. And the Irish government today, Leo Varadkar, Richard Brute and Catherine Zappone, have refused to give people recompense and are forcing people to go back uh, to the European Court of Human Rights uh, to try to get recompense and redress for the abuse they suffered. So there is an element of hypocrisy there and I would like the government, as well as trying to hold the church to account, which I think they need to do in every organisation where, where abuse happens, they also need to make sure that the Irish state is living up to its responsibilities uh, and they're not doing that with a motion in July and they haven't acted on it. Deputy Thomas Bourne, thank you so much for your time this morning. That's Deputy Thomas Bourne, Fianna Fáil TD for Meadies and Education Spokesperson for the party. We'll be talking the aged after this. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Welcome back. 086-1800-658 as always our text number and my thanks to Maggie who tells me that a group of dragons is called a weir W-E-Y-R and a group of wild dragons is called a thunder of dragons. That in relation to the presidential election or discussion earlier in the day with Kevin Doyle Group, political editor with INM. Now, stories in the paper this week about homelessness were particularly shocking. There are now 9,891 people living in emergency accommodation, 3,867 children included in that figure. But also a figure which sort of slipped under the radar during the week was the fact that in July 2018 there were 136 people in emergency accommodation over the age of 65. Joining us to discuss this is Sean Moynan who is the CEO of Alone. Sean, good morning to you. Good morning. Sean, we're all shocked at the homeless figures and we all look at the fact that in, in reality it's probably over 10,000. But the growth in homelessness amongst pensioners, is there a reason for this and are you shocked by it? No, unfortunately, we're not particularly shocked about it. What we've been doing in the background campaigning is is, is around the housing choices for older people going forward. And people obviously know we, we talk about it, it's great people are living longer. But obviously in living longer, people need places to live. And as house ownership drops, how do you pay the rent when you retire? You may have 40 years of work, or if you had a physical job and you can no longer do it, how do you pay the rent? And ultimately, is, is there's a lot of older people now facing the situation that they can't afford the rent in, a, in old age, and legitimately a landlord can sell, sell the house, and then ultimately, where do you end up? Only in homeless figures. And the state accommodation just isn't available for these people? No, I think they, 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 we, we all know that the state hasn't been building enough so, so, so social or public houses. So I think what I'd say to you is, is we, what we've been campaigning is, is to highlight this issue. I think what a lot of people have been saying is, oh, it takes a long time to develop housing. But if we don't plan for an ageing population, if we don't plan for a, a, a working uh, people of working age who haven't bought then we will end up with a much larger crisis than we currently have. Unfortunately, the numbers around older people far, could far dwarf the numbers, unfortunately, of families and children. And we want, all want families and children all to have a home too. 64% is the increase from the figure in July 2016, as we said, 136 people. Can you give us any individual stories, Sean, of, of the people who present as homeless over 65? Well... We just uh, recently opened uh, 11 new apartments, right? So let me give you an example of, say, two people in those that moved in. One, one chap, and people can look it up, he did an awful lot of... When we did it, we did some publicity because we were trying to highlight the issue around older people, homelessness and housing, and we appreciate this opportunity this morning. But he, he did a lot of it, so it's, it's all right to tell his story, is, is that he's 65-year-old carpenter. Physically, 
harder to do his job at his age, but he'd been renting for nine years, right? And legitimately, the landlord decided to sell his house. What people need to realise is no matter how far long you rent, no matter how good a tenant you are, you are only 240 or 224 days from being homeless. That's the maximum because there are four reasons for which you can be given notice and one of them is silent. So all of a sudden, a man who is 65, very active, very able, right, but is now going beyond working, right, is in a situation where a man who's never needed any support has nowhere to go. He was 10 days away from going into a hostel when when he managed to secure housing with us. And this man would not have been prepared for homelessness? This man has no history of anything to do with ever needing any support from the state. Do you know, he's he's been a carpenter all his life, he's working all his life, he, he, he's renting. But we've got to accept in the country. We've got to move away from the keyboard warriors come out when you say anything about social housing and all oh, why didn't whatever. We've got to accept that there's always been a percentage of people who worked 40, 50 hours a week, but their wage rates were never at enough to buy a house. And these people and, these people paid their these, taxes. And these people paid their taxes, they contributed. So what do you do in old age? Now, as house ownership drops, and a whole old people, even who have really, you know, medium-paying jobs or even what are considered well-paid jobs, may never buy in the future. What are we saying to them? Oh no, you're you're looking for something for nothing, because that has been the the, the level of discourse on this, and we've got to understand that the people who work in shops, carpenters, plumbers, all these people, and this is not I don't want to be disparaging people that we respect, our neighbours and friends. If they don't buy, does that mean we can't help in old age? And they're also so pe- think, they're also people, Sean. We rely on absolutely. So so I think we've we've got to understand that that, that that's what's going on, and we need to move away from a situation. So we've got to realise that older people cannot survive in private rented in old age. You don't have any safety and security. That is not a criticism of private rented. That is not a criticism of landlords. That is just the practical issues. In 10 years' time, when Joe's 75, right, he may need support. And naturally, if he's in private rented, that is very difficult for a landlord, even if they're the greatest landlord to provide. Somebody like us can provide it. Somebody like the councils can provide it. We can provide those supports. And that, 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 and, 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 and as his needs change, our services can change. And these are just practical realities. Sean Moynihan, CEO of Alone, thank you so much for your time this morning. Now, sticking with the elderly, Audrey Dean is the Health Policy Officer with Age Action Ireland. Audrey, good morning to you. Good morning to you, Cahill. We're looking to talk to you, Audrey. There's a, a government proposal uh, to abolish prescription charges. Or you're looking for the government to abolish prescription Big charges. Difference there, yes. <laughs> for, o- for over 70s in the yeah. upcoming budget. Tell us about this. Well, yeah, first of all, it's not what the government wants. Uh, prescription charges were brought in as, for a variety of reasons uh, a few years ago now. A lot of them got to do with, uh, A, obviously it would save money. B, uh, there was this uh, supposed stockpiling of medication by people. I'd say a lot of that was down to inefficiency, inefficiencies between pharmacies and the HSE and all of that. But really, in reality, we're talking about something that doesn't make sense. 
if you've got somebody who has perhaps multiple issues and conditions and let's face it as we all grow older we're inclined to uh, accumulate a variety of conditions uh, that need to be treated and at least managed but if you have to pay a prescription item of two euros now to be fair it has gone down from 250 for each item that you get on your prescription from your gp up to a maximum of 20 euros a month that uh, if you multiply that out by 12 that has a significant impact on your budget if you are living on a a fixed income and let's be honest most older people are tell us uh, audrey at at the moment when you hit the age of 65 what are you entitled to medically well over 70s when when you say medically do you mean across the whole system is it medical cards are you entitled to a medical card or yeah that there's various there's there's kind of two types of people over 70 um you can have a medical card if you fit under the uh, income thresholds that the HSC has set um if you are if your income is over that you can have a GP visit card Cahill, which gives you free GP visits but it means if they come up with something that needs to be treated or they want to prevent something happening they give you a prescription you're going to have to pay for that and you're calling on the government to do what exactly well, what we want the government to do is, well, first of all, there's a longer term health plan, which I hope everybody still has in some part of their brain, called Slauncher which everybody has signed up to, which is going to bring in over the coming years free GP care and primary care to everybody across the land in, on, in groups of income, people who need income. At the moment, it is the over 70s and the under 6s that have free GP care. Now, this is a very shaky approach to dealing with this issue that people need access to care. The Irish Cancer Society told us there that so many people are terrified of going to the doctor because they just can't afford it. So it puts them off even making connection into the health service which you can imagine we know where that ends up. And that adds to the expense to the health service. Of course, because they end up with the condition further down the line, perhaps chronic, perhaps dramatic and they're in an A&E and then they end up in an acute setting which is the most expensive location to have your health issues treated in the whole health system system. So what we're saying is in order to have a preventative health system, it's much better that people can go to their GP when they need to. Um, as, well, we'd like it all to be free, but we have a feeling that that's going to take quite a long time. But in the interim, what we want to see is that the GP visit card is for people who do not get the full medical card, that the range of services for that includes free prescriptions for people over 70 because we know and our members tell us that it is a huge physical, psychological and economic pressure for them if they do not have the full medical card they have to go off and and pay for their prescriptions And we wish you well with that Audrey That's Audrey Dean, Health Policy Officer with Age Action Ireland We'll be back with you after the break Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM And on Sunday, the footballers of Dublin will look to make history with a fourth All-Ireland title in a row when they play Tyrone in the All-Ireland Senior Football Championship final, that game at Croke Park, of course. Before we went on air, I spoke to Gordon Manning from Kells, who is also the GA correspondent with the Irish Sun. And I began by asking Gordon if Tyrone have any chance of a shock victory. I suppose in a two-horse race, Carl, you always have a chance, but it's very hard to make an argument to see how Tyrone uh, are going to have the firepower to um, in a shootout against Dublin on Sunday. Our own columnist Colin Moran has said in the Irish Sun that Tyrone will need to shoot 20 points to beat Dublin and he just doesn't see them getting it. Would you agree? 
I would. Um, a lot has been made, I suppose, thrown trying to you know accentuate the positives have have said about the spread of scores they've had this year, like whether it's coming from Frank Burns and in the half back line and midfield and up into the forwards. They have had a good spread of scores, but it's just gone through the figures and like Conor McCallisky is their top scorer. He scored two thirty eight in this year's championship, but if you actually. Uh, take that down to an average of what he's got per game an average roughly you're looking at less than five points per game but 4.8 points per game Peter Hart is the second highest scorer he's scored 214 that's down at an average of two two points a game so I mean they're not scoring massive scores they've played nine games this year's championship they don't have uh, any outstanding forwards in the the kind of the mould of Owen Mulligan and Peter Canavan and Stephen O'Neill and these guys that they had in the past uh, and I think the lack of real firepower is going to be their downfall on Sunday. Now, Tyrone will say that they've improved on last year's semi-final when, of course, they were hammered in Croke Park. They met in the Super 8s and in the league earlier this season. Better results. They still lost both games, but better results for them, better performances. Did you see anything in either of those games to say they could win this? You know, the games, I suppose, what happened in Oma in the league match, it was a, it was a kind of a typical February night. Um, everything was right for Tyrone to kind of dog out a victory up there against Dublin that, that evening but they kicked a lot of wides not under a huge pressure either and they just didn't seem to have the belief that it could finish off Dublin that night now it was interesting on that occasion Peter Hart like I suppose Tyrone's three kind of the three wise men they look for are Niall Sludd and Peter Hart and Matty Donnelly they need those three guys to have big games on Sunday to have any chance but Dublin have kind of in the last couple of games have really have identified those as the key players they have to nullify and John Small in particular in that match up in, in Oma in February uh, dogged uh, Peter Hart from the minute he came onto the field he followed him around even gone off the pitch at half time and Peter Hart was you know, distracted and is disrupted and he wasn't able to get into the flow of the game and it's been interesting in the last week or so when we hear any former uh, or any former Throne players talking that they always mention the fact that they're highlighting maybe Peter Hart needs more protection and referees keep an eye out for Peter Hart and even more Throne players have to look after Peter Hart so it's obviously something they're aware of that Dublin are going to try and disrupt them again and, and there's some Throne players maybe on message or former players to try and get Peter Hart a bit of protection on Sunday Dublin fans won't have a lot of sympathy for that viewpoint. No, and listen, it's it's it, they have to look at their man marking roles as well, I suppose. So, uh, like, Kieran Kilkenny has been Dublin's big, uh, you know, I suppose quarterback player. So, who are Throne going to put on him as a man marking job? You know, a lot of people saying Paul Hamsey is the guy to maybe to take him. Hamsey has been uh, an excellent man marker this year. He's done great jobs on Conor McManus and Michael Murphy, but. The thing about those two man-marking jobs in particular, they're kind of inside jobs in the inside line, where Kinkle Kenny will be playing further out the field, and it's a bit harder to kind of pin down a guy when he's got a bit more space in that half-forward line and in that middle third area. So it'll be interesting to see whether they put Hampsey out on him. What will Throne do with Brian Fenton? I mean, Brian Fenton has been having, you know, year on year he's been growing as a player, and he's been having probably his best year this season, and what he's really added to his game is scoring power. He scored uh, 1-9 in this year's championship. So will they look at putting Matty Donnelly on, on uh, Fenton, and does that then take Matty Donnelly's game away from what he has to do? for? So Throne have a lot of questions of who they're going to sort out man marking wise I think Dublin maybe have less 
uh, players to worry about as regards picking out, highlighting two or three players that they have to take out again for Tyrone. Has Mickey Hart added another dimension to his coaching ability this year? In, in that you know they seem to have benefited more than anybody else from the system and from the extra games. Well, I think the qualifiers have stood to them, and they have experience of doing this in the past, of course. But uh, certainly, as the qualifiers have gone, they have improved as a team. I'm still not sure they they know their best team, especially in the forwards. They kind of they're kind of taking out corner forward every now and then, starting a different guy. They haven't really nailed down their best six up there. But as the qualifiers have progressed, they certainly have got better. In the game against uh, Mead in their first qualifier match, uh, they really they, they looked in trouble for long patches of that game. And that was against a Mead team whose confidence was on the floor as well. So, you know, really thrown at their best should have been putting that Mead team away, with a Mead team with little confidence. But they got out in Avon, they, they battled out a win. And since that, the qualifier draw was, was decent to them, Carlo Cavan. They played a Cork team who just, another team whose confidence and belief wasn't there and destroyed them. And their, their best performances so far, actually their last two wins, the wins over Donegal and Monaghan, and kind of show that the progression has been there whether it's been there to the extent that you know they can close a 12 point gap from last August is questionable and certainly when you look at the last two games that were played in Oma they still didn't get over the line in their own backyard and we'd a lot of a lot made out of the fact that I suppose Mickey Hart and Throne tried to uh, narrow the pitch up in Oma for the game up in uh, in, the, in the Super 8s and Dublin still came out of that uh, Healy Park with the win and you have to say Dublin probably didn't play at full pelt in that match we haven't really seen Dublin a full pelt this year yet, have we? We haven't. We haven't. They haven't needed to be a full pelt, but uh, it's not something you can just turn on either, I guess. Uh, and maybe sometimes we compare Dublin to maybe their swashbuckling style of a couple of years ago when they had Dermot Connolly and uh, formed had Bernard Brogan at the peak of his powers, Paul Flynn. These are guys who you know aren't going to start it again. Some of them not even involved. So that was a Dublin team who plays swashbuckling football, and also when teams maybe were a little bit more naive setting up against them, they weren't as defensively orientated. So Dublin could play this swashbuckling football, uh, and they looked brilliant, and they looked you know they were just. Uh, effortless in the, in the football they played but in the last couple of years teams have really set up defensive against them which means Dublin have sometimes looked ponderous in their football they've had to play laterally hand passing the ball and patiently waiting for their chance uh, and that maybe has, has kind of contributed to people saying well Dublin haven't played brilliantly um, but again the game that they're faced with has made it a bit more difficult for them to play their natural style Do they think about the foreign role is history on their minds? You know the management, the, the word from the management and the processes uh, are that you know it's not in mentioned in the dressing room. It's not part of their uh, build up to the game. I don't believe it is part of the build-up to the game, uh, but you couldn't be human uh, without even at home on your own uh, at night thinking about maybe, you know, I am part of a panel of players that uh, is going to become the first Dublin team ever to win four in a row. Um, and certainly they won't be thinking of the five in a row, but uh, maybe when we look back on this uh, in a few years' time, this this four in a row could be the means to the end. Just it's uh, it's the one in between getting to the ultimate prize that they really want, which is the five, which no team in hurling or football has ever achieved. Finally, you were Mystic Meg for the hurling final. Got the old Mystic Meg uh, crystal ball back out there, Gordon. Who's going to win? Yeah, I think whatever way you stack it up, it's hard to make an argument for Throne winning it unless a lot of things go wrong for Dublin and Throne have their best game, not in, only in this year, but in a number of years. Uh, so in that regard you have to go for Dublin uh, I think the last what, five finals Dublin have won uh, 
the last five that they have won, they've won four of them by a point and they've won one by three points. Uh, I think this is the final they're going to win uh, coming down the stretch, being able to look up into the stands knowing that uh, Sam is staying in the capital and I expect to see Dublin win by more than six or seven points. As a Meath man, are we ever going to see Meath back in these uh, All-Ireland finals on the last Sunday in August or the first Sunday in September? Um, I think it's it's harder now than even before because of the Super 8 structure. Um Mead shouldn't have an excuse given the population that you know that this system really suits the bigger counties. Uh, if this super race continues in this format, where you have two groups of four, um, it's, Dublin will get to the semi final every year. You know, Mayo, Kerry, the bigger counties, more or less, are going to be guaranteed coming out of it. Even if they don't win the provincial, yeah, you just feel that it's going to be very hard for. Um, a shock like a Tipperary team to get to an All-Ireland semi-final uh, like, like happened in recent years for Mead I suppose we have to first of all get back to winning Leinster's uh, winning game winning competitive championship games uh, and get to the Super Ace to try and see where you can get from there but to get out of that Super I mean in the past you won one quarter final suddenly you're in the semi-final you had a chance of going all the way I think Mead have a, a building job ahead before we get uh, or even start thinking about All-Ireland finals Gordon Manning there from the Irish Sun. My thanks to Marie, to Maggie and to Chris. Sinead is next with the Mid-Morning Show. We'll be back on Monday. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 